You are listening to The Emulsion Podcast, a show that informs and inspires the restaurant industry to work, live, and create better. My name is Justin Kana. I'm a chef and media producer with almost 10 years of experience in award-winning restaurants all over the world. I created this show as a way to give back, to inspire the next generation, and help you progress your career. The Emulsion Podcast is sponsored by you folks, and Patreon is where that happens. If you're here as a return listener and enjoyed the episode you just came from and happen to want to support more episodes, visit patreon.com slash Justin Kana. I'd really appreciate it if you can. I totally understand if you can't. Free ways you can support this show include leaving a like or comment on this episode, filling up all five stars on iTunes so more people can find us, or simply sharing an episode with a friend. This is an interview episode. If you missed out on asking your burning question to today's guest, that's probably because you aren't following me on Instagram or Twitter. I use the handed any question feature in my Instagram stories, and I also start a thread for each guest on Twitter. So between the two of those, that's the best way to take advantage of the access I hope to bring you with this show and all of the interviews I do. Let's learn a little bit more about today's interviewee, shall we? I think you you changed life until the day you die. Mm-hmm. And for me, I changed so rapidly. I was first like this. People were knowing, people knew me as this cook, the chef, and then now he's an entrepreneur. What the hell is he doing? And you know, it was so many people that questioned what I was doing. And as long as I believed I had genuine intentions, I I just sort of ignored them. Yep. Which is hard now because I I've lost some dear friends mm-hmm. because I've got on this journey. But it's in hope that for them to understand that I want to build something that no one else has. And totally. For you to do that, you have to put in the work. What is up, folks? It is truly my pleasure to welcome you to another episode of the Emulsion Podcast. Today, my guest is Mike Trong, owner of Faint Media. He is a Portland-based entrepreneur. He also works in New York for a little bit. He used to work at Momofuku Co. as a chef. He has experience in horticulture, which we definitely talk about in this interview. But rewinding it for a quick second, a story of how this interview came to be, I told myself when I went to the Feast Portland Festival back in September. This trip, the whole trip would be worth it if I get one podcast interview out of the whole trip. I went with nothing scheduled, nothing on the calendar. And so I did my best to keep an open mind while I was at the festival itself and trying to like network as best as I could. So I was at this cocktail hour for the media pass people. And the plan was they were going to put us all on a bus and take us to the first public event. And we would get there like an hour early and we would get to sample all the food without the lines. It was going to be great. So we get on the bus and it's like a full full-on party bus inside of a yellow school bus. There's like karaoke and people are drinking and taking selfies. And for all of you that have been following me for a while, it's not really my scene. So I'm sitting in my seat quietly by myself. I'm probably on my phone. And there's this guy who is vlogging. He has like a vlogging rig. And I vlog. So I'm sitting across from him and I we I introduce myself and we immediately start jamming. So I took my shot. I was like, hey, I'm here on a media pass for my podcast. Would you want to sit down for an interview? after our breakfast event tomorrow. Long story short, he says yes, we hang out basically that whole night and then we go to the breakfast event the next morning, which is at the Heathman Hotel. For those of you watching on YouTube, that is where the interview is set. They had a nice little lounge area where I just kind of set up shop and decided that's where we were going to be interviewing because where I was on the road and I didn't have any other choice. So excuse the small bit of background noise. There was like more breakfast things going on just one floor above us, but I think the mics did a pretty good job of rejecting some of that. So in this episode, we talk about how to combat burnout as a chef, why chefs should be thinking like media companies, my own personal philosophy uh, about creating content, which I actually haven't shared in any other interview, which is definitely worth uh, listening to. And then uh, like Mike has investment from Samsung. He basically has this crazy journey of how he went from um, cooking at his high school, uh, his college's university and goes beyond there. But I will, of course, let Mike tell that story. And then he also, of course, shares what it's like to change industries, but still work with your old peers 
which can absolutely be a little bit awkward, but also really motivating. And I got to say, we get really philosophical in this episode. It's not normally the direction I go to, but again, I enjoyed it a lot. And before I forget, he is at Faint Mike on Instagram if you want to get in touch with him there or ask him any questions. But for now, please enjoy this conversation with Mike Trong. It's my first feast, though, so I had no expectations. So everything's going to be exciting yeah. for me. But you're, you're, you're based out of here. Yeah. Right? And you grew up here. Yep. So how does that... Do you, are, are you jaded about Portland? Do um, you feel like it's changed or kind of gone through this weird... People talk about, like, you know, the gentrification a lot in that. And I grew up in, like, a part of Portland that was really ghetto. And I'm talking about... And it still is ghetto that if you pass the street, you can see all the... You see all the restaurants and you pass it a bit. You'll see, like, people riding lowriders, people bumping music, you know, people hanging out in the backyard and, like, the front yard and everything. And so it's really weird to see a lot of people come in and just so many restaurants opening. And like the last, maybe this year and, you know, last year, you're going to see a lot of restaurants who open and aren't that successful. I've seen restaurants that come in for a spot for less than six months and close just because they think that opening a spot like for brunch just a few days a week is going to be successful when it's not. And, and it's easy. It's easy. Like it's it's uh, because they see all this success around them, right? Yeah. Like to, to, to anyone that's outside of Portland, Portland's like... I mean, even the guy who just gave the speech upstairs was like, it's a mecca for food and, and, and all this stuff. So do you feel like, um, what do you feel like is that differentiating factor that will keep a restaurant open? I think part of it is the media scene mm-hmm. that you have to be somehow media credentialed, but it's also that a lot of people now you see people like Kacha and all these other restaurants are bringing home styles like back to the the old days kind of sure, food. Sure, sure. And you do see some successful, you know, more gimmick kind of food being mm. successful. But that is only for, you know, it's almost like almost an Instagram kind of thing. You yeah. Know? Uh, so you don't see that like once or twice. But I think right now it, there is a heavy influence in the food culture of just the Instagram culture itself, which is, you know, I'm not a huge fan of it. Yeah, so. of course. And we're going to get into that. But um, is there anything else as far as like your current views on where the industry's at that you want to like that you want to share or that you want to just like what what's what's top of mind for you especially being at this food like conference where you're (laughs) i think the biggest one right now is probably knowing that all the food carts in downtown portland right now there's a huge spot that's gonna be pretty much you know everyone has to move because they're building a new hotel holy Uh, shit it's like the one near portland state but it's just there's so many food carts there like uh have you ever heard of nam's kitchen no no nam's a Hong Kong rice and it's like she she came from uh, Andy Ricker yep and so she built like this huge success story and she, she does have a brick and mortar but that's her original shop mm-hmm. it's got to move and the big talk right now in the industry is rent is crazy in Portland right and as downtown starts to you know be more capitalistic the fear is it might shift into the east side of the bridge where uh, rent is going to increase yep and all these you know places that want to go brick and mortar won't have the money to go brick and mortar or they'll try and they'll they'll most likely fail right now so it's a it's a portland-based hotel that just bought up the land and they're just going to kick everybody out yeah that's insane that's how it is that's so sad um but you're on the media side of things as well now Mm -hmm. and so i'd love to hear a little bit about faint and a little bit about you and and kind of give us that journey for you as far as like starting young in restaurants and then to where you're at now, like what are what are kind of like those big checkpoints that 
Oh, I don't know. It's a, it's a long story. I'm Asian American, obviously. Yeah. And so my parents had want me to go to uh, college to be an engineer, or doctor. You know, the very Same. stereotypical. <laughs> Same. And uh, I didn't. I just didn't have a passion for it. I think my dad, you know, grew me to be this person so quickly that I didn't really have a passion for it. Mm-hmm. But I always loved food. But my mom, uh, she is Vietnamese, so she always cooked like you know the pho and all that at home, and I ate that almost every single day, and I got bored of it. And huh. so that's when I really wanted to start learning how to cook for myself. And I remember the first time I tried to cook was, you know, trying to make some fish and chips or something. But I thought I was really fancy. And I tried to, I made crumbs of like, I think, Fruit Loops or something. And I dipped a, a piece of salmon in it. Whoa. And then I tasted, I was like, wow, I'm a horrible, <laughs> I'm a horrible cook. But I think that was my first like cooking experience ever. And sure. I remember throwing it in the trash and my mom, you know, asking me what I did. And she got really mad at me and, you know, saying this is expensive. And that's when I knew food especially in the neighborhood I lived in was very, you know, it's some people don't have food at all. So, and that's when I was very food conscious. And uh, when I went to Oregon State, I studied computer science and Mm -hmm. then pre-med. At that time, too, I was also cooking for the Oregon State athletes. And I enjoyed that job. It was my really first culinary job. And I really learned a lot. Like I, but at that, it's a very corporate job. And you're making food at huge volumes. And at the end of the day, you know, football games or any sports events we had to throw away so much i remember walking through the walk-in and you see like just slabs of cakes and you know just steaks that like and you and you had to clean up and you just had to toss it away mm-hmm. and seeing that much food waste was just it's just not right you know because part of our tuition actually went to the athletes yeah yeah and so i stopped working there and i went into horticulture which was the development of you know growing vegetables and fruits and everything and I actually grew my own breed of cucumbers which is amazing like they had this beautiful crosshair but they taste like shit they were they taste so watery whoa and but it to see the science behind that and you know really dive deep into like you know this isn't GMO everything is technically GMO it's right, created right differently and you know, I took that and eventually I I really wanted to compete and like be the best chef I possibly could because when you're a young chef, that's all you want. Like, yeah, that's you're very narrow minded. Chasing, yeah, you're chasing those kinds. And of so things. I went to New York and I trained for David Chang at Mo Fuku Co. Yeah, for a long time. And I just, you know, I you pretty much eat crap the whole entire mm-hmm. time. And you know, mm-hmm. you, I'm pretty sure you, yeah, you're coming from the French Laundry and you know per se and everything. It's it's you know. I relatable. mean, staff meals didn't suck there, but they also weren't, like, amazingly... Exactly. Isn't that funny that you think at high-end yeah. restaurants you'll have, like, good staff meals, but sometimes you have, like, a turkey sandwich or something yeah, like that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember French Laundry, uh, Bouchon would always make pizza for everybody on Saturdays, and that was, like, the hardest day, and you're, like, fueling your body with pizza. Yeah, you know what crazy. I mean? It's, it, is, it is kind of a weird thing. I want to touch on that horticulture thing, though, because mm-hmm. did you do that through a university, or you found some random farmer who was, like hey, I'm, I'm totally willing to work with you. How did that work? At that time, I had a friend who was work, working as a uh, just an hourly worker, uh, just like helping with the school. And then they had this tour, which uh, was just bringing in producers and that. And I was like, you have to take me. And then he took me there. And I, mess, I met someone named Sinji who was trying to bring in Haska berries from Japan. Huh. And he was trying to go uh, pretty much wholesale with it. Yep. But the, he was trying to sell these berries for $6 a pound, which was crazy. But the acidity in these berries were like so high that and I've never tasted anything like it before and so I worked with him and he taught me everything about horticulture 
and uh, in return I would cook at the Saturday market at the you know in Corvallis and I would bring new dishes and introduce those berries to the public which was awesome sure so you were finding a way to essentially bring value with the set of skills you already had as kind of like a foot in the door I think that's like a really valuable takeaway from that um Going back to, like, your childhood, what other things were you into when you were, like, 12, 13, 11? Because I feel like a lot of that sometimes dictates what you do later in life. Um, I mean, you mentioned you were kind of an experimental cook, but, what, like, were you into video games? Were you into sports? Like, So that's the crazy thing. My dad was very strict. I've never played Pokemon. I've never touched a Game Boy, Xbox. I've never touched weird. any of those stuff. Why? Because they thought it would rot your brain or what? Exactly. That would rot my brain. I remember we got, like, a... Uh, Atari one day for like Christmas and my dad uh, like it was a gift from a family and my dad told him to take it back I still have like the cassette you know the little <laughs> Mortal Kombat cassette you know that's all I kept but it was like when I was a kid my dad had taught me like I programmed my first computer at you know when I was eight. Oh, so you should be selling the, the or you should be creating the consoles not gaming on them yeah he wanted me to be like the strict you know because he, he came here as an immigrant so he knew everything that it was going to be tough so he programmed that into my like life that you had to work extremely hard. But it was the point where, you know, eventually when I got to college and I was like, I'm going to cook. He was like, you know, what, what the <laughs> heck are you talking about? You know, I I worked so hard for you to work at a desk job with air conditioner and, sure. you know, and, you know, just sitting down. But it was I can't sit at one place for more than three hours. Mm-hmm. I want to be creative, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's just it just bugs me. Even though if like my feet hurt sometimes during service, I, I was, you know, honing a blade. I was learning after mm-hmm. cut after cut. And then. I think being in the kitchen is is an experience that everyone should have at least once sure. you know, to understand like the hard work that goes through it. Totally. And do you feel like that, you know, lack of, I mean, I would hate to say lack of tech because you had tech in your life. Mm-hmm. Like, do you feel like that lack of, um, has any of that childhood stuff manifested itself into where you're at now? Or do you think it's just kind of... I think part of it, the manifestation of being negative when I was younger because my dad saw the world so negatively mm-hmm. and he, he wasn't very optimistic. He's like, you can't have you can't have this kind of friend, you know, because they're a bad influence. And so when I grew up, I thought the world was negative. I didn't really trust people. Sure. You know? Now I, I trust people at the start and then, you know, it's lost. Yeah, you know, let, it, let it get lost there. later. So, um, yeah. What are some... I'm curious to hear because you made the transition. Then we we kind of halted the story there. So you were you were a chef for a while, and then you got burnt out, mm-hmm. right? Why choose to go the media route? Why not go be a painter? Why not go make pottery for restaurants? You know, like there's so many other options you could have gone down. Where was the spark that hit them? And what is that? The first few sentences of that next chapter. What do they look like? I was very conscious that I. St- whatever I did I still had to make a living mm-hmm. and at that time I understood media was growing the internet was just really starting and people didn't really understand you know the how the marketing and the whole Facebook situation with you know Facebook ads and mm-hmm. everything people were scared of it and what really hit to me was when people well I guess not until a year later but the fact that you know we have all this government stuff and, you know we had the huge thing with Mark Zuckerberg and he talked about facebook and people were scared of it and it's if the government is scared of you know facebook ads as a marketing thing it it shows how undervalued it is right now that people aren't really collapsing on it totally and so it it was just a huge eye-opener and you know this the next these year gaps were like the biggest things like it like everything great in life will eventually disappear 
And so if I know I didn't hone the skills of, you know, understanding people and human awareness and, you know, understanding why people love food or why people do certain things, that it was going to be lost. Mm -hmm. I'm also a, I work in the autism spectrum too. Got it. So I work with kids who have autism and kids with autism, they usually have a very pure mind. And, you know, to understand these kids and just really build empathy and understand, like, you know, a cook's life is very hard. You struggle a long time, like all those hours. But a child with a mental health disability, they have it much harder. And right. so when you compare, you know, where you rank in, the, in yeah, life, it gives you perspective. You know, it gives you huge perspective. Yeah. And, it, you know, he, being here at Feast, you know, we talk about, you know, perspective wise of everyone everyone comes from a different background so when they when they talk about their media story it's it's really all different and really interesting actually right and so you saw it as a a land grab more yes. or less right like this is this is huge and were you originally thinking this is going to be a full force media company this is going to be i'm going to be a freelance video guy and just help chefs i'm going to be the next david gelb and make chef's table 2.0 for netflix like where was your head at in those early days, and how has that transitioned into what Faint is now? It was originally going to be just me making media that I loved, and I thought that if I loved it enough, I would find the economic you know, backing for mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. And for that, it was like, I was like, I'm not going to make it for the next decade. So I had to, you know, really just focus on myself. And I've, I'm extremely lucky to have, you know, you know, sponsors and lucky breaks where I've been able to expand so quickly and hire people and, you know, just almost in a way it makes me unstoppable because my mindset is very unstoppable sure. that if if i put in the work anything can technically happen yeah and so i guess my next goal would be is it'd be so ambitious to say but it's like almost the jonathan gold of portland correct food scene correct because we don't really have we have a lot of outlets here in in portland that you know tell about food but it's in a paragraph form you yeah know? no one really digs deep and really wants to learn the nitty-gritty right of you know the hardship of it because that's not a glamorous thing to watch but that's the the truth and i think with the internet era we live in right now the truth exposes everything mm-hmm. and you know it's just the right thing to do taking it back to you mentioned you're working with sponsors can you tell a little bit about that story because i think it's a fascinating insight into like an alternative way to start something up you know what i mean so i think everyone in the beginning they they're always like i need to find sponsors i need a crowdfund i need i need i need money to start something and i tell people all the time you have to just work for free like you and a lot of people want i think an artists they want to get paid for what they do even if it's like a few bucks but to really understand there are so many people who want to be like content creators now and with you know the technology of cell phones and that you can create great pieces on like an iphone or a samsung you don't need like a huge you know camera crew and that sure. and you know even a five-year-old knows how to take pictures now mm-hmm. and so to really put yourself out there you have to just work for free yeah over and over again and and a lot of people ask you know is there a shortcut and i don't think there is you just have to grind it because everyone right now i think when you're in your early 20s, everyone wants to be an influencer for some right, reason. Right, Or, you know, be, be someone important based on, you know, their following numbers or sure. anything like that. So I think hard work will surpass any of that. Yeah. And so you approach, because Samsung was one of your early yes. folks. What? How did that come about? You started working for them for free, right? Yeah. And that was shooting content on a phone. Mm-hmm. And then what, at what point did it click where you said... 
no, I don't want to be an employee for Samsung. I want Samsung to invest in me. Like, what, where, 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 where did that come from? At that time, there was huge news about cryptocurrency and everything and with technology and with AI development and everything. And I made it, I was very public of how I view technology, that this was a stopping force and no one was going to stop this. Like, even if you fear technology, sure, it's never people want to it's too like, far it's human yeah. nature yeah, yeah, almost yeah, yeah. that they want to create something that would almost dominate us one day and <laughs> and i have that fear that you know eventually we're all going to die by computers but hopefully you know i don't see the data yep. but uh that being said i knew that i made the statement so public and i knew that if people saw me that i was crazy or something that was fine but if there was one or two people who actually believed in me who had the money to support this id then that was it yep that's all I needed was the foot in the door or someone to be like, let's give him a chance. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think for any entrepreneur or anyone who is a content creator who is trying to find that sponsorship, you have to uh, – have you ever followed Gary Vaynerchuk? Yeah, of course. The, you know, the the left, left, right hook yeah, yeah, kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, 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 Mentality, totally. that was – Bring value, bring value. Yeah, that was me the whole entire time. Yeah. And so when I finally asked and I was like crossing my fingers, they are like, oh, yeah, sure. And they were – and it caught me by attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so almost everything now, even with the show I do for Portland, I do for free. You yeah. Know, because I know in the long term that's going to develop some kind of legacy for me here. Hopefully, like a legacy that Jonathan Gold does. And you know, I don't want to say his name and you sure. know, compare, but sure. it's like that is the hope and dream. Yeah. I mean, if you keep that as a north star, and you're 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 being inspired by him in the positive light, as far as like. I don't think you need to look at it as a, as a negative, at least from my perspective, because you're not you're not doing it for I want to be the critic for the L.A. Times kind of thing. You're not, you're not doing it for the for the job title. You know what I mean? You're yeah. doing it for for the sake of telling the story. You know, so it make you get that you get that initial investment from Samsung. How where what made you think of what you did with the money? Like what? what because can you tell a little bit about that? Because I feel like nine out of ten people would have done something else, yeah, having just, that knowledge. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like being young and being from a family that didn't have much. Yeah, I knew that. Like when my mom used to give me fifty dollars every month, I thought that was a million dollars. And now I, I I got this huge investment, and then I was like, this is so much money. I don't know what to do with it. And I, my family always sacrificed so much for me, and so I knew I had to just hold on to it and wait you know and at that time i was only 20 21 years old so money didn't really i didn't really need anything right and i think that's the big thing with our age or our generation is if you have a lot of money people want to buy cars Mm -hmm. they want to buy nice things to show off and for me i lived in a life where my dad was the only working person and he put you know food on the table and he wore the same shirt all his life and i grew up you know wearing these purple like sweatpants (laughs) in middle school and I would get made fun of, but that's like, I couldn't do anything because that's, that's the financial status of my, my family. Sure. And so I just took that money, I held on to it, and I just watched for trends because I knew with, you know, saying, I talked about AI and everything, so I knew it was coming. So eventually when Uber came around and people thought it was really weird that people got in cars and that, and now you see it's all over the place, I knew that was the best thing to go. And sure. like with anything, you have to go all in. And so you made an investment in Uber, which gave you great returns. Was that weird? You have a timer going off. You're fine. You're fine. Do you want to restart it? Uh, You're fine to restart it if you want. I might just grab the clips from your. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, So you take the you take the investment from Samsung, put it in Uber. Was that something where like 
you were using some of the money to still create content during that time? Or were you just kind of like, I'm not going to tell Samsung this is what I'm doing with the money. It's going to pay off eventually. Because to me, like, being someone who also, like, their parents were like, not crazy stingy with money, but I, I, my parents taught me the value of money, mm-hmm. right? So to hear that someone would give you money and then you would do something else with it other than what is technically intended with it was kind of like off limits, right? What's going through your head and what, what, what else are you doing during that process when you're like... They had believed in my idea that sure. this was going to be big and I was going to build something like as an empire almost. So they had to, to really just trust me, you know? Yeah. And, you know, Samsung being that, they have so much money already. So, <laughs> so you're fine. So they're they're going to survive. I was like, I was okay with it. And, but it was the, the other half I took, I hired more people because if I wanted to do what I wanted at scale, I just needed more people. Yep. Yep. And again, being at a young age, I knew I didn't need the money. And I think that, like you said, we talk about perspective so much, mm-hmm. you know, and when you really understand the ability that if you give someone an opportunity to work for you, they're going to put all their, you know, 100% in and then someone that they care about might want to work for you too. And right. that just spreads like wildfire. Mm-hmm. What were some of those initial first hires you made? Like, were, was it an accounting person? What is it an additional videographer? Was it an editor for your videos like what what were some of those first it was you made? pretty much a cfo okay because i didn't go to school for business or anything you know mm-hmm. i was googling terms up as, as i went so yep. i needed someone to pick up that weakness mm-hmm. and with like content creating i was trying to find someone who is very passionate you know uh from all the employees we have i never looked for anyone with like a degree it wasn't a requirement i really looked for the passion mm-hmm. and even our interns now our interns actually work for for free which for some like they can't handle it because you know they need to get paid and um, but it it really narrows out like the right kind of people. I think yeah. I, I surround myself with people who are very positive and optimistic because I, sure. I view I view life as there's no really there's what there's no point in looking at the negativity in life. Yeah, yeah. And so I wanted people to just keep pushing even through the hard times where it seems like you know impossible. And we just live in a world right now that's anything is possible. Mm-hmm. I think it's important that you also have the same outlook about yourself and about the business as far as like working for free because a lot of people it's very easy for people to scoff at people that ask people to work for free for them because a lot of times like whether it's a chef or a a big media company like they're making hundreds of millions of dollars or however many dollars and it's like what do you mean you want me to work for free for you right but i think it's important that you come with that empathy to to your interns Of of like i also work for free um I want to talk a little bit about your some of your influences. You talked about Jonathan Gold. You've talked about Gary Vaynerchuk already. What are some either like people that you've looked to during this transition, as well as like what are some if there have been any resources or podcasts or blogs that you've used during this journey? Because I mean, I'm the same way, mm-hmm. right? Like, I didn't go to school for media. All my all, all my stuff is self taught. Uh, even on the food wise stuff, I went to culinary school, but it wasn't like. I learned more from mentors and working at places. Who are some people that you look up to and who are, what are some of those resources? It's, it's hard because it's for me to look up to someone, it, it had to be because they're right now in the space when it comes to Asian Americans, there's no one doing what I'm doing mm-hmm. who's someone who owns an actual agency. Sure. So there wasn't anyone to look up to uh, at that like 
I think the only person I can say was pretty much like Gary Vaynerchuk when he talks about hustle, you know, and grind. Uh, Casey Neistat, mm-hmm. you know, he was creating video content like constantly for someone to actually do that. Is, and for Samsung, yeah, <laughs> just like you. It's it's crazy, you yeah, know, for for creating content all the time. But I think, yeah, I don't think I have much of an inspiration. It was more like. If I want to be happy, I have to do this no matter what, mm-hmm. and that was the drive that you know got me up every single day. Do your parents support you now? Now that they see it's successful and taken off, and or are they still in the back of their head? Like a couple of years ago, my dad thought I was crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I, I'm pretty sure when I graduated college, my dad thought I was going to be homeless, uh, <laughs> like he, because he was so he works for the government, and so and he worked for the city of Portland for a very long time, so he he knows you know. And I think that's why I talk about negativity because he works for the the police and he always hears these negative stories and depiction of people. And he always, you know, he views life on the more the negative side. Mm -hmm. And for me to be so positive and optimistic, it seemed like, you know, not realistic to him. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think eventually, I think it's pretty recent, maybe a week or two weeks ago, my dad, you know, my mom actually kissed me on both cheeks and hugged me and cried because she was happy that I was successful. Because when I was talking about this media whole thing, she's like, what is it? It doesn't make sense because they didn't grow. Up, they didn't grow up in that era, and to see you know the fruition and you know to turn that into actual money dollars, yeah, yeah, that's when they were happy. And you know, I'm slowly trying to teach my mom that happiness isn't money. Like money does give you the freedom, obviously, Correct. but you know, happiness comes in a lot of different forms. Yep, yep. Um, that's so. That's so. That's such a powerful story. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Um, Thanks for having me. Still, yeah, man. of this course. Amazing. Uh, what? Um, I was going to ask about, well, I could go two routes with this. I was going to ask about your day-to-day now and what you like to spend your time with and um, how you juggle between New York, Portland, media. And tell us a little bit about what Faint does as a company because it's not food-related yeah. at, at its core. And I think that's a huge perspective because I, I ran a food Instagram in the beginning and then when I became an entrepreneur, entrepreneur, people thought I was doing food stuff, but it's nothing at all. It's more like a hobby. Mm-hmm. And my friend um, Chad from uh, He Owns 50 Licks Ice Cream in uh-huh. here in Portland, he told me that you never want to make your hobby your career because the fun of it. Sure. Gets sucked out. It's, it's, it's gone. Yeah. And so at the core, Faint Media is a business. It's a digital media agency that works, you know, a platform of, you know, video, writing, and Audio. voice. Yeah. And so we create content for these huge companies. You know, we make their content. We do their SEO. We do almost pretty much from A to Z. Mm-hmm. And and I do scale in some small businesses. But the, the thing that I don't think people know is when I work with small restaurants or that kind of stuff on social media, you have people who are influencers who are asking money for it. I do it for absolutely free. Right. Because, again, value, right? Yep. Bring value, value legacy. now. Yeah. And so when that... And so that's pretty much what I do. And on the free time, it's I don't have free time. Mm-hmm. Feast Portland is like my one vacation I'll probably take till I'm like 30. Because <laughs> I'm very, I, I love hustle and grind yeah. so much. And I mean, you're even working right now, technically. Yeah. That's how I see it, you know. And it's it's also like the partnership, right? And yeah. collaboration yeah. is going to be, it's huge in the next few years when it comes to technology. Mm-hmm. And so for right now, my day-to-day is I wake up pretty early. I exercise because I need to. I just, and... I'll do my meetings, my emails, you know, get that all done throughout the day. And then I work as a behavior therapist for, mm-hmm. like, kids with autism. 
And that brings the whole entire, it's almost therapy for me. Sure. Because like I said, I didn't grow up with the Xbox or anything. So for me to be a kid again, to hang out with these kids and just, you know, pretend play and all them and to see them happy and give them hugs. Like I've never played Mario Kart in my life until wow. I worked with the kids there. And now every time I destroy a kid, I feel so happy. <laughs> so it's, um, it's, it's that kind of experience and pers- perspective, though. Sure. That was the main reason I wanted to work there is to understand that as hard as life is, some of us are extremely lucky. Like mm-hmm. for us to be in this huge hotel right now yep. Yep. to have this weekend is lucky. A lot of people, you know, dream to, to do something like this. And to have that, it's, it's almost like uh, I wrote a LinkedIn article talking about Batman, how Batman takes a burden to you know help the world but if and it's just like he wears this mask and i think as an entrepreneur or even as you know a content creator that mask for you is always on sure you can't really take it off sure even if it is off sometimes like uh, i think one of the hardest issue for me was when i transitioned here a lot of my friends thought i changed uh, if you went to college at that time people think when you graduate that's where you are in life you know you, you work that nine to five job for the rest of your life you have kids you have a house and you you live happily and for me, that that wasn't enough. You know what I mean? And I think people, they, they, they stopped growing. And for me, people were like, oh, you're changing so much. But that, that's that's how life is. Yeah. I think you, you change in life until the day you die. Mm-hmm. And for me, I changed so rapidly. I was first like this. People were knowing. People knew me as this cook, the chef. And then now he's an entrepreneur. What the hell is he doing? And, you know, it was so many people that questioned what I was doing. And as long as I believed I had genuine intentions, I... I just sort of ignored them, yep. which is hard now because I, I've lost some dear friends because mm-hmm. I've gone on this journey, but it's in hope that for them to understand that I want to build something that no one else has. Totally. And for you to do that, you have to put in the work. Yeah, sacrifices yes. have to happen. So I've experienced burnout before. Mm-hmm. Um, I know how it feels to work these long hours in restaurants for little pay and not a lot of recognition, and you're getting berated, and then at, at a certain point, it, it, it breaks, right? For me, I've always been drawn back to to it after I take whatever hiatus I need to take. Did you ever have that moment where you're like, I really miss cooking. I really kind of want to go back. Or, or, or has it been kind of like you made the decision that I don't want this to develop into a cycle. So I'm going to break the cycle by doing something else. I still live in that cycle because, you know, when I first... I got my first shun knife. That was my first chef's knife. I thought that was like the glorious thing in the world, you know, when, when you're a cook or a chef. And for me to, you know, look at the shelves now and see that it's just collecting dirt, it's, it's almost a pain because I, I had studied food so much, everything from understanding temperature to sous vide, and I bought all these machines. I spent so much money because this is what I thought I was going to be my whole entire life was just this chef. And to see that it's, you know, my, my chef jacket is still hung up, it's really weird. To be like, why did I, why am I here now? Yep. You know, and and we're at feast, and it, to see that people are cooking again and how fun they're having, even though it probably in their head they're like, I need to do this quick, I need to do this quick. You know, chef needs this right away. You know, and the timing and everything. That's like something I miss. I, it's sort of weird, right? You, you miss the stress. You miss being yelled at totally, for some reason. Totally. And there's something about that with uh, with people in the industry. I feel like they they um, the abuse is part of it in a way where it's mm-hmm. like whether it be uh, attention or uh, feeling like you matter in some in some element where it's like, um, I mean, they say that with kids, right? Like the reason that kids are so annoying sometimes is because they just want to be recognized. Um, I think there's something there. But um, I was just curious because I thought at this last 
time when I got burnt out, which was before I moved to Europe. I haven't been burnt out in, in, in many years, but I thought that that was going to be the last time. And I was going to be like, I'm done with restaurants. It's not going to happen anymore. And then I got drawn back in, and now I, I don't know. I, I, feel, I feel like, what is it that you would say to someone that's burnt out? Like, if, if, if someone's listening that, that just feels like it's over, or that it's like, it's been too much for them, in whatever industry they're in, whatever job they're in, has there been any tools or kind of like mindset changes or things that you've used to I think combat the, burnout? I think the question is, does it make you happy enough? I think when you're a cook and you're not making enough money, but you you love the food and you love being in that scene, there's there's a balance in life, you know. If you want to be extremely happy and make small wages, go ahead, you know. And I think it's also the comparison of how you, other people view you, which is huge. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, chefs back then, if you were a cook, people were like, wow, you're a loser. Mm-hmm. Now everyone wants to be a cook. Everyone mm-hmm. wants to go to culinary school and somehow be a celebrity chef, which isn't really, you know, realistic anymore. Mm-hmm. But it's that perspective I think people have of you. And um, I think you have to understand that you're your own person and that no one knows you better than yourself. So you shouldn't value anyone's opinion over who you are. Sure. You know, still be conscious and listen to people and, you know, nod your head and, you know, agree in that. But don't let anyone's opinion affect you because mm-hmm. that, that means you're giving them the, the ability and the leverage to, you know, change who you are. Right. And that, that should never happen. Yeah. Um, what? Talk to me about the food project you're working on now in Portland, the people. So I have a series in Portland right now. It's, it's called The People. We're on our third season, and it's the focus of uh, just the stories behind the chefs. You know, there's obviously some B-roll to food to keep people engaged, but most of it, it's it's, it's a very dark show. Yeah, um, which I think is in, an interesting direction yeah. you took it. I think because with food media right now, like especially, you know, I'm not going to say names because of the <laughs> sponsors of this, uh, this event, but, you know, you see food that's like even the, the, the lighting and the color contrast is very bright. You mm. know, it's... It wants you to be happy and, you know, you have BuzzFeed who's, who does like, you know, the worth it and all this and the venture and people are like, oh, I want to do this one day too. And so, and realistically, if you talk to a chef, they're like, you know, the food doesn't just arrive at the table. We have producers and I think that's the one thing that I think you could probably agree with fine dining. Some people from the outside perspective, they don't know why it's so expensive. Sure. Just because the producer has to be paid and then the time and everything. And people don't understand that. It's, they just call it, you know, pretentious food. Correct. And which is really hard because in a way I agree with it, but it's, it's priced for that for a reason. And so what the people does or the series does is it, I pretty much go with the chef and you know, I talk about their life and you know, talk about their hardship. And most importantly, if there was any like tragic event, like when uh, Bourdain died, I interviewed chef and we talked about mental health, mm-hmm. you know. And with um, even when uh, Jonathan Gold passed away, we talked about if you know, you know, how does social media affect everything? Mm-hmm. And so it's very being able to direct and produce this by myself and personally, it allows me to control like the factors of what I want to do, like storytelling wise. Y- yep. And right now the focus is uh, just keep telling the stories because another thing about the media is they're always focused on like the big names mm-hmm. and I'm telling stories about the, you know the, the little food cars that you know 
are very homey that don't get attention yeah you know but they have fantastic food absolutely and so to really bring that knowledge especially in portland portland's food scene is crazy it's insane up. yeah and you know uh and this is no offense to any publication but i always hear about the same three restaurants over and over correct again. it's either you know you're, you're talking about a a picture or you're just you know it's just it's not enough yep yep and uh one of the projects that we're working on, uh, my friend, his name's Kyle from Dame Restaurant. He, he he wants to open up a publishing company for just industry-made individuals. And I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about that yet because he he's the the big guy on that. But it's something that I'm very passionate about, and I think that this industry should be run more by people who are chefs and who do come from culinary backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And I think it's great that you're making it a passion project, like you said, so it doesn't turn into this thing where you're trying to sell it to someone or change it in a way that would um, either make it more mainstream or more watered down or whatever. It's it's still true to you and it's the stories that you're excited about telling, which I also think is like underrated. Um, I actually think I'm a, in the industry right now, I think I'm a really dark horse. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, when I came into Feast Portland, this is my first year doing the media, I sat there and it was really awkward because everyone knew each other, you mm-hmm. know, everyone knows each other in the, in the in the the food scene and i'm just this person here like when we sat on that bus i was like what's going on on this bus you know but yeah i i I really do think i'm a dark horse in this industry totally and i think it's so funny the the dichotomy because um we're similar in that way where you were cooking here last year right like you were cooking here with a restaurant and now this year you're here on media yeah and i mean for me it was like two or three years ago my chef from norway came here to cook and i was supposed to come with him but I didn't, and now I'm here for media. Like, it's such a – it's weird. The crazy thing about Feast is I – like, yesterday when we did the, the 80s and 90s, I was shaking hands with chefs that I that fired me. No way. Yeah, so, like, I think when I, when I officially trained here, a lot of chefs fired me just because, like, they're like, oh, you're too slow or you, didn't, you're, or you can't make a perfect quinella or sure, something like sure, that. Sure, so sure, sure. It's really weird to – stand across them and just shake their hand and that you still have that respect for yeah them. yeah they yeah that respect for you correct well is... because now you're playing to your strengths right yeah like now you're um i mean you made the you made the realization that you know the food thing burns me out that what you're doing now you're you're working more i would argue exactly. right yeah. and you're not being burnt out which I, I think is a really important thing where people a lot of people associate long work hours with burnout and it's like this cause and effect thing but it's not always the case right like the yeah. cause is something deeper than that it's not the hours definitely because you're working more hours now yeah, sh- shout out to the chefs though that fired me it's, uh, <laughs> it's great seeing you guys again <laughs> love it love it um let's see you wanted to talk about entitlement yes so let's talk a little bit about that because it is it is a commodity now everybody owns one of these mm-hmm. right and it's easier than ever to get access sometimes because all you got to do is send that DM and say, I'll create this, I'll shoot photos for you. So what's your, what are your thoughts on that? Entitlement is it's just a huge thing right now when it, came, when it comes to like the following number. Got it. Just because I think a lot of people think they bring value because they have that number. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you, and this is no offense to anyone I've met today or anything, but it's like, I've followed a lot of people on Instagram who I thought were really awesome people, you know, when it came to food. And then when you meet them in real life and you see how they're taking pictures and everything, like uh, our opening night for Feast, I saw a girl put ask for 10 scoops of ice cream 
on her thing, which is ridiculous. You're not going to eat that. And I know the owner. And I looked at the owner, and we made eye contact. We're like, this, this is crazy. And then I had his GM right next to me. He's like, these people on Instagram, they just, they just do it for the gram, right? Sure. And just after that, she, she just, the garbage was just down there, and she just tossed it away. Jesus. Kind of thing. So it's, I think it's that kind of influence people don't understand that they have a lot of ability. When I talk to a lot of chefs, the biggest fear is, like, with Yelp and everything, someone made that platform for mm-hmm. them to, to talk about it and now it's so dependent and it affects the chef so much they can't really fight against it because sure. they have to worry about their own business right and so they have entitlement people come in restaurants and believe that they know everything that they're the jonathan gold of you know the food scene can really affect someone's uh business and can sometimes really shut them down and when you and, and when it comes back to perspective right i don't think people have enough perspective they are entitled to amazing food when some sometimes we might have a bad service you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i think that it's just a big issue right now and i think that's only going to grow especially in the food scene so what do you what do you have to say to those people who are you know they see i'm trying to like stop the buck somewhere right mm-hmm. so like you, you you have someone who sees all these instagram influencers or food bloggers that are you know going to restaurants getting getting food for free to, shooting these lavish dishes that are c- kind of um way over the top what should they be thinking about instead? I think they should, you know, I can't tell people to live their life anyway. Correct. It's obviously just be more self-aware mm-hmm. of, you know, the impact you have. It's so powerful right, right now. Right, You know, if you're an influencer and that, you know, your ability to really help people is there. Like anyone right now can be an influencer and really make a change in the world. Mm-hmm. And we, the state of our country and the state of the world, you know, people are starving, you know, that's why people are here at Feast yeah. and everything that if you can help one person through anything in life and, you know, make their day better, it's, that's, that's winning. That's such a strong message. So it should be more about helping and sharing rather than showing off, yes. I guess, is the, is yes, the thing, right? Exactly. Or like getting, getting recognition for, for being somewhere or getting something. I mean, I think back to that 10 scoop ice cream cone, right? Like. Yeah, you're gonna get some 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 attention, right? Like the attention is gonna be there, but for what? I guess for what is is the question? I would say love the creation more than you love the what you get out of it. Got it. Because I think if you're chasing the the end goal all the time, you're gonna be addicted to it, and you're mm-hmm. just gonna do it because you want the if, end product. Yeah, if that end product is numbers, yes. only numbers, yes. right? That's yeah, I get it. Uh. I'm going to go rapid fire questions on okay, you. Let's go. It's a Saturday morning on your first day off after your work week and you're standing in front of your kitchen. How do you make your eggs? Uh, over easy. Would it change if you made that for your parents? Do you like making eggs in a certain way? My, my parents, when they eat eggs, they eat that shit dry. Okay. <laughs> they, they, they leave it there and they make sure it changed to a different color and they just put soy sauce on it. But it's green uh, eggs. My, my perfect breakfast would be. Sunny side eggs with some chorizo and some bread. Dope. That's all. Dope. Name an ingredient you're obsessed with right now. Right now it's tofu. Tofu? I'm just I'm just so fascinated at how people can make tofu taste differently and yeah. the texture in it. I'm, just, I'm crazy obsessed with it. Like right silken now. tofu, firm silken tofu? tofu, and also just like like tofu with like even stuffed tofu. Yeah. Just like anything tofu right I've now. I've never made tofu before. I need to. It's on my list. Uh Name a book that's been particularly impactful for you that you're most likely to recommend. It can be food-related, it can be a cookbook, or it can be a business book. Uh, I don't read a books anymore. Really? It's, yeah, it's, I think I was reading like self-help books, and like there's one book by, uh, I forgot what it is, it's How to Be a Badass or something, and I was reading, I was like, 
I already, I, I am the yeah, book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I so got I this. Gave the, I gave the book away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Uh, is, there t- is there a technique that you're still intimidated by in the kitchen? In the kitchen? Oh, probably making the, no, I think it's Cornell is still. Really? Yeah, and I, I've always had this issue with it, maybe because, like, I try to train it myself, and I'm, I'm not making the ice cream base, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. I don't make it firm enough or something like that or even when i try on butter or something like that like, yeah i can't make cornell's for some um we just met so you have probably haven't seen any of my videos yet but i i have a video all about you could buy a big tub of crisco mm-hmm. like vegetable shortening and if it's at the right temperature you can practice over and over and over again because it doesn't melt but it's the consistency of tempered butter or ice cream mm-hmm. so you got to watch that video and you got to practice practice it, it up uh, you somehow get a call right after this interview that you've just won an all-expenses-paid trip to eat at your dream restaurant, and when you get there, a person you've always wanted to talk with is waiting to have dinner with you. Where is that restaurant, and who is that person? Probably, uh, I want to say Noma, mm-hmm. but then I feel like that's the typical answer, but I think he's just doing crazy stuff totally. there. Yeah, Noma 2.0 is yeah. next level. And who would you have dinner with? With anyone? It can be living or dead. Will Smith. Really? I mean, he's killing the vlog game right now. Yeah, dude. Well, can't argue with that. That's the thing. Like, when we let's jump back real quick about yeah, like yeah, the yeah, technology. Yeah. You're you're seeing people like Kevin Hart, mm-hmm. you know, even Steph Curry, and even Dwayne Wade. Like, mm-hmm. they're starting YouTube channels there as they should. Yeah, because they're cutting out the middleman. Yeah, and they're just doing their own content. Do you know Gary's rant on that? Where he's like, seven or eight NBA players could just start their own league, and it would do it would do well. Yeah, like, like, the, like Shaq it's very and Kobe real. All yeah, like if they all just came together and they're like, "F the NBA, we're gonna create our own league, and we're just gonna have all our boys come out and we're gonna play, and we're gonna create a media company around it to broadcast the games." And it's real. Like the 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 like you said, the the land grab is real. Yes. Like the the way. Do you? I don't know where the. I'm trying to get to with this question, but just curi- picking your brain on the thoughts. Mm-hmm. Have you seen anything with chefs in that way? Because you and I are on the very same level where yes. we, d- I, I don't feel so much of my content creation started with being frustrated with the fact that, you know, you're a chef at this hotel, right? You get a write up from a Portland publication or some blogger comes in and, and does their thing in your restaurant. You don't have any control over that content. I think that it should the control should go back to the chef and the chef should be producing media of their own in the same way that Will Smith and Dwayne Wade are producing their own media. So they don't have to deal with paparazzi. I feel, I feel like that's the comparison is like celebrities deal with paparazzi chefs deal with yeah, that's a good food bloggers. You know what I mean? So if you as the chef are producing the media, you're in control of that story. You know what I mean? Have you seen anyone yet? We were talking a little bit about major domo mm-hmm. with David Chang yesterday have you seen anyone yet that you've been like they're doing it right? In the Portland food scene, there's no chef central like storyteller. Yeah, but there are a few like uh, I guess social media companies that they work with that are doing it well. Sure, but even with that, I think they need to do more of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, just yeah, because people will consume it. Right, yes. there's so much stuff that goes undocumented in a kitchen that people will binge watch on the regular. Uh, I feel weird that even if you put a, you took your phone and you went to a restaurant and you just left it there and put a live stream, that people would actually watch it to see, you know. Grace used to do that. Grace really? used to live stream their services, and, but it was so bad. It was so bad because the angles were always super awkward 
and they would never explain the dishes that they were presenting. It was just like set it down on the counter. You could ease, you could definitely tell it was like Bain Marie put a phone up next to it and just leave it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And there was nobody ever narrating it or like I mean, you've done live streams before, yeah, right? Yeah. Like you need to kind of control the live stream at a certain point. Um, Olmstead in Brooklyn also used to do that with their services. They had like an overhead rig where oh, they would awesome. they would live stream their pass during the service. So you could see all the plates coming in and going, but it was potato quality footage and again no one was explaining what's happening i feel like that's very important during a restaurant live stream to be like it's friday night our pdr just sat down like we got all these all this stuff coming in this is our ticket row like you've got to kind of give some narration i feel like to have a, a live stream that keeps people coming back over and over this again. Then. do you think that these new netflix series are helping them with like ugly delicious and all these <sighs> I think chef's table. Yeah, yeah. I think that it's definitely shining a light on places that wouldn't normally get covered by things like New York Times or or, or these larger food publications because they're more. It's not that their story is any less impactful. I just feel like it's not a watered down mainstream story of like um, coming up from nothing or blah 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 blah. Like some of the stories that get told in Ugly Delicious are amazing. But uh, I just think it's funny that the the chef's table story arc is always the same, where it's like they have a very specific storyboard that they do with almost every single episode and every single chef. Um, I feel like there's an opportunity for smaller independent creators to partner with chefs and be like, listen, I know you have this story and I I want to tell it for you, but I don't necessarily think that it has to come from it doesn't have to be custom tailored for Netflix. Yeah. I think that it can be something because ultimately like the content that I produce for friends of mine that have food related businesses is to help their business. You know what I mean? And I feel like your, your mindset is very similar in that. It's like, I can create this beautiful movie for you, but the value that I can bring to you is more sales or like Mm -hmm. more consistent business or like more return customers or customers that come in and they say, Hey, I saw the video about you and I'm really excited to come eat here now. Whereas before, I mean, what, what does a restaurant have to do? Put their, put their website online, put yeah. a tweet out, you know, like have an Instagram page. Um, I just think that there's, um, there is value in that Netflix stuff because, I mean, it's the chef's table effect, right? Like yeah. you go to a restaurant and, I mean, half the people, when I went to go eat at Austria Francescana, right? I feel like years ago before his chef's table episode... It would have been like, oh, it's this guy who has a really amazing restaurant in Italy. Now it's like, oh, is that the guy from Chef's Table? I think that's an interesting conversation where it's like, if your restaurant gets on Chef's Table. Because so many of these people on Netflix that are watching Chef's Table don't read Eater. They don't get food and wine that's, delivered well, to their door. Really so you're, you're, right. you're broadening your audience, right? It's these guys who just like these people who just like sitting on their couch and watching food shows. Um. And I think you're, you're 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 broadening your audience if you get a chef's table episode, and I think that's underrated. Um, uh, I, I don't right. know. That's I don't know. That, that's a good, uh, good point you made there. Yeah. Where do you think our industry will be in the next few years? And you know, like just because you know prices of rent is going to be high. Totally. You know, where, totally. Where you, and we talked about this like yesterday on the bus, like the whole fine dining aspect of it. Where do you think it's going to be in the few years? I think fine dining needs to. 
see how it can how it can bring in alter, alternate sources of revenue. So we were talking with this couple upstairs at breakfast about these. It's a couple, and they're partners in this business that does delivery, right? And then there's all these other places that I've covered on the show before that do delivery based. Uh, food out of the same space where they'll you know they have 40 seats but they serve 800 meals a day because they're able to do all these takeout meals and uber eats and whatever 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 i think chefs need to be very thoughtful about how they're using how they're expanding these bottlenecks right so in a in a restaurant you have 45 seats right that is technically your bottleneck Right, because you can only have you can max out at revenue. And the the story I always like to tell is like if you sell headphones, and tomorrow Wall Street Journal writes about your headphones, and you get a thousand orders for headphones in, you can call up your factory and be like, "Hey, I need a thousand more headphones. Hang up the phone. By next week, it's going to be delivered, and your customers are happy." Right? You got an influx of of of, of interest and, and and orders. You can satisfy those orders and profit from it. If I have a 45C restaurant and Chef's Table episode comes out about my restaurant and all of a sudden I'm like El Bouilly and 500,000 people call to make a reservation, how many times do I have to say no? No, 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 no. I, I can't fit you into my restaurant, right? So that's where the bottleneck happens. So chefs, I think, have to be very thoughtful about how do they expand that bottleneck, whether it's takeout food, um, whether it's a cookbook. I mean, that's the classic way yeah. to like spread the ideas. Whether it's something media related, whether it's you know going to a festival and serving people your food, so between that, thinking about how does that bottleneck affect the business? Because I mean, if you don't want to serve five hundred thousand people a year, you don't have to. I mean, you can you can be like Magnus Nielsen at Favakin and serve, however, like a couple hundred people is probably how many people he serves in a year. But I also have to think. I I, I also think that chefs. And restaurateurs should think about how they can make money off of things that are not food. Because yes. I feel like that's something that people get super caught up with is like, I am a chef. I cook food. This is my thing. And I think that the people that we're going to start to see that are successful in the next three to five years are the ones that realize that, yes, I can do the food. I can do the food thing. It can be a restaurant, it can be a takeout business, it can be whatever, it can be a food truck, but I can also make money outside of that. And I look to someone like David Cheng as someone who is doing that right now, and we're going to look back and see like, oh, he saw it. Like, he saw that media was going to be important. He saw that, um, I mean, rest in peace to Lucky Peach, but it was like, that set him up for this next chapter for himself. And I think that... Being someone that sees that is, it's very rare right now because for people like us, there's no, there's no path, right? Like there's, there's no one you can go work under to be yeah, like, teach me how to do food and media at the same time. We're, we're kind of like just out here winging it. On, yeah. Winging it. Like learning, learning as we go. And with media, it's the same thing, right? Like you can't, it, it is laughable to think about going to a university to learn a social media course like who's going to teach that number one number two in 18 months whatever you learn is going to be obsolete so why you can't you can't learn at a in a formal setting you can't get you can't be a, an accredited social media expert because who's going to give you that accreditation exactly right so you have to like build it on your own and then use that as the leverage to be like look what i built 
Um, what would be what would be a win with you for faint? That for faint. Oh, I've been asked this a lot, and then I think it's right now it is successful as it is. Yeah, like I didn't expect to be here until I was thirty, and I'm twenty four now. So I think the next journey is to keep going, but also to venture out on like other avenues. Mm-hmm. But most importantly, like still keep to the morals of it, which is you know doing the right thing and being genuine and not being apologetic for the stories I'm going to tell. Sure. And I think it's. For me, next part would be for me to personally influence people in the education scene. Mm-hmm. I think education right now is going to be very troubling. Like, I think if you went to school for business, you know, right now and you come out, this it's a whole entire it doesn't new world. look good for you. Yeah, it's it's everything like the terms you learn and the statistics. That's all cool in that, but when you come out here and you're faced with, it's I think that's the one thing that bothers me a lot is a lot of universities they have entrepreneurship programs where you you have mock. You know, sure. you do mock kind of stuff. Sure. And you, when you realize and you come out of here, you need a lot of, when you need money to start your business and you learn that you're working 16, 18 hours a day, you know, trying to just make enough so you can just eat. Yep. It's hard because I, I went to a restaurant and we had a meeting and he talked about that for a restaurant, for him to open a restaurant, he starved a lot, which is crazy, right? <laughs> yeah. As a chef, yeah. you, to open your own restaurant, you have to actually starve a lot mm-hmm. to even make food. Yep. Yep. Which is, the, I think, the hard realization of where we are right now is everyone wants to be something and they, they talk it up. You know, you see it on their Instagram profile that they're entrepreneurs mm-hmm, or whatever, mm-hmm. and a lot of them won't back it up. As someone who has spent time in some high-end kitchens, and there are a lot of like line cooks, sous chefs, culinary school students listening to this show, what do you think that chefs can be doing better to help the next generation based on like stories you've heard from chefs or, or your own personal thoughts? I think it's, I think it depends on the chef, mm-hmm. the, the chef in general. Um, I would love to see more chefs just, you know, on their off time or something, just going out with their, you know, your, their team or something. I think it's less and less that like, I think it, it happens a lot more now, but you know, we talked about it before that, the whole egotistic chef is disappearing mm-hmm. and people are becoming more, you know, family honed and everything like that. But I think it's, there's a balance, right? You need to have that relationship where they respect you and they can do their job, but also know that if they have a sick day that, you know, give them a sick day. Or yeah. Something. It's a real sick day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So just, I, I, th- I think perspective Yeah, and feel more empathetic about things and, you know, just collaboration i think collaboration is number one right now and this sure. is what feast is all about yeah it's just collaborating with other chefs and you know because i don't think anyone can do it by themselves anymore Mm-mm. david talk- was very lucky yeah yeah to like get peter and some of the other people that he's worked with that have just been i think that's another thing that we're going to see quite a bit is the not the dissolving but the it's going to be very rare to see the standalone chef anymore i yeah. feel like the potential for you to be a either solo chef as part of a larger collective, whether it's a media empire or, or you know, going into packaged food or whatever, whatever, whatever. Like going onto the big boat, like building a larger ship as opposed to like going out on your own little dinghy mm-hmm. is going to be like huge, I think, in the next um, five to ten years. We're not going to see the, the Alain Ducasse or the, you know, yeah. Paul Bocuse or the, you know, like the standalone chef that has his one three Michelin star restaurant anymore. I feel like the potential to reach 10x, 
number of people and share your ideas with so many more people are, is going to be way too attractive and filled with less gatekeepers. And it's, I mean, if you really want to have a big food empire surrounding yourself with that core team of two to ten people that are going to help you, I, agree. I think it's going to be, yeah. I think it's got to go from, you know, being, it's a David Chang restaurant, it's a, you know, a Grant Atkins restaurant to just the name of the restaurant. Correct. The it's Major Domo yeah. restaurant. Yeah, the Momo Fuku. Yeah, I agree. I totally, or the Noma, the Noma. Um, Which Noma has done great. With, yeah, hugely, you know. hugely successful because it's not even like, it's Noma 108. I mean, bar, their restaurant, their, their investors in bar. Um, yeah, it totally makes sense. Do you have a style with your video? Because it's something that I, I kind of struggle with sometimes because I don't think I have one, but maybe I do. I don't it's, know. It's really interesting. I think my style is 24P. I shoot very, yeah. very low and almost like theater-like. Uh-huh. And I shoot almost all the time handheld just because I want it to be the realistic feel, like especially where the series is going specifically. I shoot it for at 24P, mm-hmm. no slow-mo or anything. It's yep. just like just straight up there and, you know, the, the raw and dark feeling about it. Even how I color grade it, it's almost very dark and all that and it was funny because every time we we get into these conversations and we, you know even off our own camera they're like dude your show is really like it's sort of depressing yeah and i was like yeah dude it's crazy depressing <laughs> but i'm like i'm really happy about it because that's the story that's the story that's yeah the that's truth. real yeah the truth yeah like and they can't they can't fake it because that's that's their life so. yeah yeah i love that how about you do you have a certain like <sighs> i think it depends on I watched a couple of vlogs last night. Yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. It's like, you're a pretty good vlogger. Yeah, you know, you thanks, got that uh, thanks, enthusiastic. Man. Yeah, I'm trying to, uh, I mean, with most of my like talking head style stuff, it's always 24P, very real and trying to be authentic. Mm-hmm. But when I'm doing stuff for clients, which a lot of stuff of, like that isn't posted on YouTube, I kind of like try to ask them what they want because sometimes a client will be like, I want it really like quick and snappy um, to like fast paced music. And then sometimes people will be like, I kind of want like, slow uh cinematic aesthetic lots of slow motion uh transitions blah 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 blah. um which has been great for me because then i can try to learn all these different techniques of like watching these tutorials on like how do you uh slow down footage or how do you like adjust your frame rate to make sure that it all matches up and Mm -hmm. and and all that because um then it makes it something where it's like you know i can shoot a talking head video but now because of that client work that I did where I shot something in slow motion, I can shoot some B-roll about this knife that I'm talking about and insert that into yeah. the talking head video. You know what I mean? So it's like it's constantly learning and that's something that like for me with food, I certainly feel like I – in like the modern American cooking realm, I certainly feel like I plateaued at a certain point, right? Like I learned how to sous vide. I learned how to cook fish. I learned how to butcher meat. I learned how to like – Uh, cook vegetables and make purees and infused oils and all this stuff that like is very all the techniques that are used in all the modern American kitchens of the day and I plateaued there and so video for me was something where it's like I started at zero and it was very very exciting because I thrived in that growing up like talking about when you're a kid that was like my favorite thing was like starting from zero at something Mm -hmm. and tinkering with it and learning about how I learned best and reading the books and, and figuring out when you're learning guitar, like all that stuff was very, very exciting for me. Um, it's a journey, right? The journey to yeah, any place is yeah. going to be the best. And it's something that I was very fearful of because I cooked for almost 10 years in all these restaurants. And it was weird to go from this thing that I knew so well 
And I almost forgot what it feels like to be a beginner. But it's so... I realize that, that that's where I'm truly happy. Is like, like you said, progress and change. Like embracing change yes. has been very, 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 very valuable for me. Where it's like, that's where I'm comfortable is change and adapting and figuring out how we're going how we're going to figure this I out. I think that's the fun of life though. Yeah. I think it's like if you, if you just be stagnant all your life then it's life is very full when yeah. you when you understand that it's out there and you just have to actually put in the work and and the struggle provides fulfillment I think where it's like unti- like if you're just comfortable like if someone gave you a million dollars and told you to go sit on a beach and drink mai tais you would be miserable because you're not learning anything, you're not doing anything, you're not providing any value to the world. But so many people like see that as like the win. That's the end goal. That's the end goal, and it's like that's not the win. The win is to like continue to create and help people and share your ideas. And I, I, to me, that's success. Yeah, and, I don't know. and there's nothing wrong for people who actually zero want to sit on the zero ideas. Yeah, you know? zero, it's, zero. Everyone has different values, so it's just I feel like once you struggle, then you come out on the other side, and then you feel fulfilled. You're solving problems. You're like making stuff happen. I feel like that's I don't know. In a way, do you feel like you're addicted to it? That after you come out and you solve something, especially at 26 now, that there's so much more in the world that you can do and you can influence? Yes, wanna... yes. That was also very eye-opening where it's like I don't have to go the traditional path of like going to university to learn a new skill. I can teach myself because I am naturally curious enough to kind of like make that happen. I was listening to an interview the other day with um, where they talked about <laughs> when you, when you get this new thing and you're like, you're working for free probably right with this Mm -hmm. new thing that you're doing and they tell you like hey i need you to create this uh short video for instagram uh that's going to work for our social media post tomorrow can you take care of that and then you say yeah when in reality you have no idea what you're going to do about it i mean one of two i feel like there's two types of people right like the people who are going to like stay up until two in the morning Googling like what's an Instagram post and how do I like format it for this kind of stuff and then there's the type of people who are going to be like I don't know how to do this and then like that's the end of the story it's like what do you mean you don't know how to do this and you're just going to sit there right like there's all these resources available for you yeah, there's no to figure it out there's no excuse yeah. there's no excuse and yeah it definitely was like very eye opening for me where like oh I can teach myself this skill and then I can get paid for it because I've taught myself how to do this which is, again, talking about Asian parents, that's yeah. not how they think. They think, like, what do you mean you're doing this thing that you taught yourself and you're making money doing it? Where it's, like, before, for them, it was, like, you go to school, you learn how to do this thing, you get a job for 20 years somewhere, and that's your life. You die. Yeah, then you <laughs> die, or you retire, and your kids take care of you. Uh, yeah, it's just a different... It's just a different... It's crazy to Ideal. think about it, you know, how the world has changed so quickly yep. in the last few years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a question here I was going to ask you. What What is the best meal you've had in recent memory? Best meal recent memory? Oh. If any. That's tough. Uh, I don't think... Oh, I had a omakase. Where? With, uh, at Zilla Sushi. Okay. It's in the northeast Portland, and they brought in a full tuna, and they butchered it in front of all of us, and they had... Uh, the swordsmen's like these craft swordsmen's from Japan actually there for the dinner insane and it was just this crazy I think the the one thing oh, shoot I forgot what it's called it's like the gonads of uh, I forgot what it's called it has so much umami flavor it's orange and it's uh, not uni is it uni not uni it's uh, shoot I'm gonna get pissed now that I'm <laughs> but it was 
it has such an umami bomb that it, it, it just melts in your mouth and it has like that fishy taste and mm -hmm. it, oh crap I that's guess, awesome i forgot what it is yeah it was, it was great like i think people should try omakase once even if, if it's expensive i think it ruins your experience at sushi belt restaurants you can never eat there again sure sure how about you do you have a, a meal that's like lifetime to you that oh lifetime yeah um so i never got to eat at el Bui. And so when Next in Chicago did their El Bui menu, uh, my, a friend of mine got tickets for that. And I, f I remember I flew to New York from New York to Chicago just to have that meal. And I'm so glad I did because it was like some of the last times that, you know, the spherified olive and uh, their fish that they serve on a bag of seashells and um, like the salty carrot puree and or the salty carrot foam thing and all these all these things that like you see in the El Bui books and that you read about uh that never are never going to see the light of day again whether uh, I mean you can go to like tickets in Barcelona and get some of these dishes but like Ferran gave Grand Ackets the green light to serve this menu of El Bui at next and I feel like it's not going to happen uh anymore I mean with Ferran not really cooking as much as yeah that was a very, very special meal. Um, my meal at Per Se after my externship was also, like, amazing because I spent essentially six months prepping all this mise en place that I would rarely see on a finished dish and then to finally see it all come full circle and experience a menu with my dad, by the way, who was, like, helping support me work for free at oh, Per Se. Great, you know, great. so I got to eat with him, and he could finally see, like, all this stuff that I was saying that I was doing, working for free, come together in this meal, in this amazing place, uh, that was a very, very special meal. And then recently, I don't know, I feel like sometimes I can get jaded with a lot of the fine dining things. Because a lot of times you're seeing things for like the third or fourth or fifth time. Or you're seeing things where, like, I'm, I, I see what you're doing, but I see that you're doing it just for technique's sake as opposed to actually trying to trying to do something or, like, what's the actual idea behind this dish? So more often than not, I get impressed by, like, the more simple things. Um, my girlfriend and I went to Italy in January, and we went to this place where they don't even have a physical menu. The lady just tells you what they're cooking that day, and, like, you get to pick whatever you want to eat, and they'll just bring it to you, and it's amazing and it was in Bologna and the pasta was like so next level um, another meal that was really good fine dining wise was Jimbocho Den in Tokyo because again I was asking him about a fish and he like brought us out one of the fish that they were like aging for six days in this special paper um, I don't know I feel like the things I look for in food now are very different than what I looked for when I was starting off uh it's less about flashiness and more about like thoughtfulness and like what do you potato add? last night we yeah crispy skin potato from yeah uh, dead shot you know shout out to dead shot like yeah that, that that was crazy that's like nostalgia right yeah. like it's it's not only the nostalgia but it's like prepared in a way that actually is delicious and i mean yeah it's uh just like thought into it not just like it's a festival food but there's totally like, i need to make festival food that's gonna blow people's minds up. right right and it's like they were trying to do hot food in the i mean it wasn't cold but it was like you know they were they were trying they were, they were trying to make stuff happen which was kind of cool because i feel like it's really easy to mail it in with festival food sometimes 
do the do the the charcuterie on a cracker with mustard that they made in house or some yeah. some shit. I agree. Which is it is what it is. Um, what other questions do I have for you? Hit me with anything. I don't know if I have anything crazy for you. We got five minutes until our next thing. Yeah. Let me think. Maybe I have a question for you. Yeah. Yeah. So when it comes to like, what is your your life advice then? Not not talking about food or anything, but your advice to really pursue what you want. Mm-hmm. Um, it started off very backwards for me, right? Like I wanted to have a three Michelin star restaurant. I wanted all the accolades. I wanted to be the best. I wanted I wanted the headline to come out that said best chef in the world or best chef in the u.s justin connor you know what i mean i wanted this to be this thing and that kind of led me down this path of trying to stodge at all these michelin restaurants and work there and learn under these guys because i knew that that was the path that was before me was this is how these guys got there and that led me down to the path that i wanted and when i got i got my externship at per se and i started working at french laundry and and, and all this stuff happened I came to the realization that once I got behind the scenes, it was kind of like behind the curtain of Wizard of Oz. It was like, it wasn't that I was disappointed. It's that I got to see all the other shit that went along with having a place like that. And it wasn't necessarily exactly what I expected with success. And I don't know exactly what I thought was going to come if I got that restaurant, right? Mm -hmm. Um, There's this great book that I have a video out on about Ryan Holiday's Ego is the Enemy video. And it talks all about how you should not chase the job title or the awards or the accolades. You should chase the work and the process. And I feel like all these people that we've covered and talked about very much so preach that because uh, that's very much so where success and fulfillment comes from. And that's what I've that's what I seek out now is fulfilling work, not necessarily. Um, resume building work or the highest paying work um and i i i I, i'm very aware and and you're probably very aware of this too that we have a lot of years left in our life and we have a lot of projects we can get accomplished if we really keep working at it and so right now i'm trying to focus on like what is the most impact i can make with where i'm at right now and so for me that is bettering the next generation of chefs because i definitely feel like there's a lot of that talk of there's no good help these days. Good cooks are hard to find. And I feel like not a lot of chefs are doing anything to help the next generation. And part of that is because they don't have the time, right? Like how am I to ask someone who owns a restaurant and cooks on the line six days a week to put out content on the internet, like write articles and yeah, yeah, just on your, on your free time, do this thing, you know, to like better the next generation. So, while I'm not working in a restaurant right now, I want to take this time to give back and put something into the world that, I mean, back to like what Gary Vaynerchuk talks about with like legacy. I feel like a lot of chefs are sometimes applauded to the number of people that they've influenced in the professional space, right? Like Thomas Keller is seen as successful yes. because Corey Lee has Bennu and Grant Ackett's has Alinea and all these people have all these places and they worked under Thomas Keller. Right, and he's very humble about it too. He totally, never super. He never yeah, never, never. This is ego about it. Not for ego's sake, but I think that there can be another chapter where I can say I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that there's this guy based up in Seattle, actually Chase Jarvis. He's a photographer, and he talks about the fact that 
the single university on your resume is no longer going to be a thing in a couple of years. No, no, no one's going to go around saying, I went to Harvard. People are going to have all of these other influences that have shaped who they are. And I think that if I can have in the next 15 to 20 years, when we see that roster of the best chefs doing stuff in the game, I would like a large majority of them to be able to say that following my stuff and listening to the content that I put out influenced them in a positive way, right? Where I don't want to be anyone's go-to, I learned under Justin Kana kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, because it's just, it's just a, it's a, it's a fallacy to think that that's a reality where like I have this kitchen and only eight people come and cook with me and I don't pay them very well and they cook all these hours and then they go off and they do their own thing. I would much rather be able to say that. And it's not even like, I don't even want it to be like the best chefs in the world say that. I mean, I would like to have a certain number of them be impacted in a positive way. But I also know that like, if that happens, there's going to be the trickle down and everybody like under that, there's going to be hundreds of people who have gotten positively influenced in a way where it's like, you're not chasing stars for stars sake. You're not, uh, you're treating your staff with, with respect in a way that's sustainable. Um, all this stuff that you and I are both super passionate about, it's about like drilling it into the head of a chef. You know, like I have this thing that I'll say sometimes where it's like when it is cool to be a nice, empathetic chef, like when the best chef in the world is also really nice and empathetic and, and preaches hard work, then people will aspire to that. But for right now, it's kind of like the coolest chefs are the ones that are walking around at all these festivals with nice shoes or they have the best restaurant on the San Pellegrino list, which doesn't always come with positive things, you know? So, um, yeah, I just think that people, and, and, and one of the reasons why I do this interview show to interview people like you and, and the knife makers and the, the, the farmers and all these people is to show that, you know, when I started off, the only path to success was to have a Michelin starred restaurant. And now that I've seen the other side, I know that that's not the case. And the same and that, thing for me when it came to education. People thought you'd be successful, you have to go to college. Right. Not saying you shouldn't, but it, now we live in a world where there's, if you want to do something successful and you, you take the risk, the opportunities are out there. Precisely. So why, why pigeonhole yourself to think that there's this one path yes. when there's so many? And yeah, I think that it's, um, it's, 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 it's toxic to think that you have to go down this one path to have success. But back to the place where I started this story, because I had this idea in my head that I was going to have this three Michelin star restaurant, I went down, I went like so far down this road and then I could see that it wasn't right and turn around and go a different direction. But I had all these things that I learned from having worked at these places, which now I can then leverage for this next chapter. So that's been very, very valuable. So my advice that I try to tell people is to like get that North star and push towards it rather than trying to be all scatterbrained and whatever, whatever, because at the end of that road, if you pivot, you're going to be able to do something else. I mean, we talk about like these NBA guys shooting media and you with food and media, right? Like someone could tell you like, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean you're doing media? You should do something food related because then you can use all your food experience to affect this next thing. 
And it's just not the case anymore. I feel like if you're successful in writing books, you can then go be a musician. And no one's saying no. Like, no one's going to hold you back from doing that. Exactly. Uh, it's just if your head's on straight. Um, I don't know. That's my that's my advice. I don't know. I know we got to go to this next event. Yeah, so we got to go to this I next event. Just one last comment. Yeah. I think no matter what in life, you have to chase what makes you happy. You have to say yes to the things that make you happy and say no to the things that you just don't want. Totally. I think uh, people are really scared to say yes to the things that scare them. And I think fear is like one of the greatest things that people set for us to, to you know make us not do what we love to do. And I think anything in life, you just have to chase it. Totally. You know, and we're here, we're here in this really nice ass hotel right now, you know, doing a podcast, you know, and the effort and the work you put into it is the output you're going to get. So you just have to keep doing it and just, you know, like you say, chase that North Star, you know, don't give up. And even if you get there, find a different universe, maybe there's aliens on Mars or something. I don't know. You know, just go beyond and above. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I appreciate you being on the show, man. Yeah, this um, has been fun. Thanks for having me, man. Of course. Hey, hey, future Justin here. No outro or IGTV takeaways section this time. I'm doing a bit of an experiment with the next couple of episodes. I don't want to put in all of that extra editing work if you're already going to listen to the podcast anyways. And so I'm going to see how statistics look like for this episode if um, because of the lack of IGTV takeaway video views, it's not saying it's not getting views. It just I want to see what the numbers look like and see if there are other ways that my time can be spent, whether it's in, in increasing the production quality here or maybe uh, taking tidbits of this episode that I think are really valuable, putting subtitles on them, and then repurposing those for something like IGTV or Twitter. I don't think you're necessarily missing anything with this interview by me not doing the takeaways section either. I got very comfortable with Mike. We were able to have a very real one-on-one conversation, and so I th- there's a couple times in the interview where I actually disclose what the takeaways from those sections are. So I think the interview is good enough to stand on its own and if it's something that you missed please share your feedback with me on twitter or instagram shout out to everybody also supporting the show on patreon details for that are in the description or info tab or whatever podcast platform you're listening to or right below the video on youtube speaking of the audio only fam i had someone tell me at an event the other day that she loves the show and she listens because she randomly found it on itunes which tells me that all of your positive reviews are working so if you really want to show the show some love in an absolutely free way and make sure people can find us. I would really appreciate a positive review. If you decide you'd like to leave a negative review, please add some constructive criticism or feedback in that review so I can continue to improve. Okie dokie, that was a long one. I always appreciate your ears. Until next time, my name is Justin Kana. Roll the outro. Thanks for listening to the Emulsion Podcast. I appreciate your ears more than you know. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help sponsor the show, head on over to patreon.com slash justincana. Other ways you can help out right now include giving this show a review on iTunes so more people can find it. I also love seeing you folks liking and commenting on the video if you listen that way, or even just share this episode with a friend. Now is normally why I would tell you that my name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one, but you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to, so I'm just going to get out of the out of the way here excuse excuse me